Hello everyone and welcome back to Sprout. Today we're bringing you a special conversation with Emily Bobbis. Emily is the co-founder of Compass IoT, a multi-award winning tech startup using connected vehicle technology to improve transport, city planning and road safety. She has over five years of experience working within the Sydney startup community and is passionate about mentorship, user-centric design and the power of data to make a difference. What I really loved about this conversation is learning about what Compass does, which is improving road safety and essentially saving lives and preventing injury. We also talk about city planning and the major trends in mobility and also Emily's experiences as a young woman in tech. She offered a really interesting perspective on diversity and imposter syndrome, so stay tuned for that. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Sydney. And I'm Viv. Welcome to Sprout. A podcast about finding your place in the world. And growing an impactful career. Welcome to our show, Emily. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start us off, we'd like to ask some icebreaker questions. What's something you've learned this week? I was talking to a um, a gentleman called Rajesh Thangaraj for our own podcast, uh, mm-hmm. and he's a specialist in emerging technologies and edge computing, which I had no clue about what any of that was. Um, and so I learned about how that complements cloud computing and how they're two totally different things. And it was just a really interesting topic that I have no previous knowledge in. Yeah, that's super exciting. Um, check out Emily's podcast. It's called, is it called the Bite Sized Podcast? Bite Sized, yeah, yeah. Yes, cool. Now, moving on to learn a little bit more about what you do at Compass. So, what exactly is it that you do? Sure. So, Compass aggregates data from connected vehicles, which is data from uh, vehicles from about 2014 onwards that tend to have some kind of connectivity. A SIM card is a great example in them. And we use that data to help inform city planning, transport, and also road safety, which is really cool. Uh, my role, so co-founder, I do most of the branding and the marketing. Um, so a lot of the social media stuff, kind of like the fun bit, but also uh, product design and overseeing the user experience uh, and the user interface of what people actually get to touch when, when we give a product to customers. Really exciting. And I noticed that Compass IoT has two different I guess sub products right yeah yeah are you able to talk a little bit more about what um, those two things offer yes so we've actually got a third one coming out very soon it's in beta at the moment yeah Uh, so the first one that we have is survey which was our OG kind of MVP that we released with survey was uh, meant to tackle the issues of trying to figure out traffic flows and congestion so at the moment if you want to figure out how many cars are going across an intersection or or whether people are are speeding or actually going the speed limit you have to kind of have people out there manually counting or you have to have some kind of hardware in place so you often you know there's like rubber strips that you see across a road have you seen those before like on the side of the road like on like on the cross, the whole middle of the road, they're like these black tube looking things. Um, and what happens is the cars run over them and then that sends a signal 
to say that a vehicle has gone over and they'll leave them there for like a couple of hours or, or a day or a week and it'll tell you how many vehicles have run across that road. Right. So that that's kind of how they've done that um, prior to what we're trying to do, which is use the vehicles themselves so that we reduce the costs associated with that whole exercise uh, and also hopefully increase the the accuracy still working on that bit um but it's Mm -hmm. it's it's coming along we're we're kind of um focusing a little bit more on our second product at the moment which is called safe point safe point same thing connected vehicle data but we're using safe point to help identify potentially high risk locations where people are having instances of say drivers swerving or drivers suddenly braking to proactively predict where people might have accidents in the future uh at the moment a lot of it is reactive like you have to wait for somebody to get injured or 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 fatally injured in order Mm -hmm. to get some data about that intersection um so we're hoping to prevent the number of serious injuries and deaths that occur before a local council or a road operator can can help address that issue um the last one (laughs) so many breakpoint which is in beta hasn't really been released yet but it's very similar to SafePoint. It takes the aggregates, um, like braking and acceleration of vehicles to give you an idea of congestion and when people en masse are braking really suddenly or speeding up really suddenly. And then you can, a, a great example is say you have a bridge that's really narrow uh, and a government or a road operator wants to know, should we upgrade this bridge? Um, and then they can see on either side are drivers suddenly braking as they're approaching this bridge because maybe they're a little bit um, skittish that the bridge might be too narrow and there's oncoming cars and it's a little bit not not the best driving conditions. So they'll uh, they can use that as a, as a really good example. Yeah, very cool. So how did you get started with Compass? What led you to um, this initiative? What well, led to Compass? was a couple of things so uh, my co-founder had originally started another startup called Airbike Australia uh, and he asked if I wanted to come on and do the marketing and I took that opportunity and then after that whole thing had wrapped up we were kind of both still really interested in mobility data and we had a lot of local governments uh, who were involved in Airbike that were also very curious about it and we figured this is actually kind of like a bit of an untapped uh, area to, to look into. So that's when we decided to start Compass, maybe a couple of years after after Airbike. Uh, and Angus, my co-founder, was like, oh, well, do you want to come on as a co-founder this time? Because I was only ever a, a marketing uh, content creator person. Uh, so we did it that way. And I would like to say I immediately took up the role of of co-founder but I was very like like my mom's an academic and my dad's a high school teacher so I was always just posed to take a very traditional white collar career path like I, I did my bachelor's degree I did a master's I was very prepared to just like go through the graduate graduate role positionings and it kind of really sucked <laughs> like <laughs> I, I would apply for these grad roles uh and they would ask me things that I felt were not even relevant to the role or about me as a person. Like 
they'd ask for Raven's progressive matrices, and I'm like, what the hell does this have to do with literally anything? <laughs> and then they asked for all of my subject grades, uh, and then I ended up doing an internship in Beijing for a while, and it was just, it was really soul-crushing, I'm not going to lie. It was just, it was really awful, and I'm like, I couldn't do this for the rest of my life, like nine to five. I would rather work more hours like I do now, but on something that I know I have a tangible impact and I can see the value that I'm having than a a traditional corporate job. Uh, And I think a lot of graduates as well get caught up in this idea of like, oh, it'd be so great to work for like this big consulting firm. And I'm sure some people really enjoy that, but it was just, yeah, I couldn't do it. After having one, one example, I was like, no, that's it. Startups. Okay. Like you can always go back to corporate. Corporate's always going to be there, but the startup mm-hmm. opportunity may not be. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like what you said about how you can make a tangible impact. And especially for Compass, what you guys are doing is literally like saving lives. So that's yeah. super exciting. Um, really keen to learn more about, I guess, your like the roads, our cities, and I know this is like an area that you talk a lot about. So what is sort of the current problem with our cities and our roads? There's, I don't know necessarily if it's a problem with the roads, but mm-hmm. like like most cities, right, you, you build an infrastructure piece, so a road or, or a transport location, and then cities don't grow how you expect them to or people use them very differently to how you how you envisioned that they would in your models, which totally happens because you're basing your models on just, like, predictions. And then you've also got things like uh, asset maintenance. So your road will degrade over time, uh, and that then impacts the quality of that road. And that can then – it's like a, a catch-22 almost. So if you've got – a road that you only ever built for, say, medium traffic uh, in, in a local area, and then all of a sudden it becomes a thoroughfare for very heavy vehicles, then you've got that issue of the road was never built to cater for that amount of traffic. And so then that throws out the asset maintenance calculations. Um, it can cause it to become unsafe. It's So city planners have such a hard job uh, trying to figure out not only how a road is being used now, but also how a road or a piece of infrastructure is going to be used in the future based on just just a couple of calculations, which seems really crazy. And having yeah. having extra data, which is what we're trying to do, to try and help them make that process more streamlined and easier uh, and just a less painless or, a, 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 yeah, a, a painless process is is what we're aiming to do because it's 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 very hard to predict how a road might end up and then you've got infrastructure that gets built around it and it changes literally everything right so to clarify would you say your clients are city planners um so the governments of each um state is that how you would describe it as yeah so we describe ourselves as B2B, so business to business, but also B2G, so business to government. That can be anything from a, a state government, a, a local government, so a council. can also be private consultancies, so there are, are traffic consultants that will be asked to come in and then do those infrastructure projects on behalf of a government or a council. But, but also things like research institutions uh, and insurance agencies who are interested in having more data available so that then they can 
uh, help inform the future of future of city planning and sustainable infrastructure. I've never heard of the word B to G actually, so that's really yeah. interesting. Um, when you're dealing with, I guess, really big customers like the government, and there's not many governments in Australia, like <laughs> how do you um, try to get them on board? So, I mean, I can't take a lot of credit for that because <laughs> my uh, business partner, Angus, handles most of that and he's very good at yeah. it. I think it comes back down to steps that a lot of startups miss right at the beginning, and that is making sure that your solution addresses a real problem and then also communicating the value and communicating the value in terms or, or using aspects that are important to your customers. So a great example is, say, SafePoint. Um most of the data for crashes at the moment, you rely on police reports. Police reports mean that you've had a serious injury or, or a fatal fatal injury. Uh, at the moment, trends for roads can take about two to three years to actually develop. Uh, and the statistics in Australia are we have on average over a thousand deaths and 35,000 injuries every single year. So if you just rely or you can only rely on the crash statistics because traditionally that's all we've had and you have to wait two to three years, that's two to 3,000 people who have died on Australian roads and then another over 100,000 who have been injured in the community. And that's, that's a serious issue. And once you put it in tangible terms like that, it makes it really easy to sell or really easy to communicate why this is such an important thing to have because you've put it in terms of your customers' KPIs but also just the financial and the social cost of, of solving that problem. So I think that's really important. A lot, of, a lot of small businesses and startups make the mistake of starting with this amazing solution first and thinking about selling it to themselves rather than the problem that is facing their actual customers who will be giving you money to to make this <laughs> missile happen. Yeah, so I guess you're solving such a big and important problem, they have to take up your solution. Yeah, you you want to put it in value that you know yeah. that is 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 relevant to them and important to them and they have, you know, the governments like every other organization, it has KPIs that it needs to hit. Um and if we can help address those while also making the community safer. I mean, it's a win-win. That's really interesting. And I think commonly you hear that you should focus on one particular niche, especially when you're new. Um, You guys have sort of done three different products. Why is that the case that you've chosen to do three at the same time almost rather than making one really great and then growing that before starting a new one? Yeah, sure. Uh, So... Survey, which was the first product, we had that for like over a year before we decided to then start working on SafePoint. Um, mm-hmm. And funnily enough, SafePoint took like a quarter of the time to build, partially because we already had that existing infrastructure from the first product build. Uh, and it, it, it came down to as well this I, this need to innovate and we were like, okay, if we just have, we, we never wanted to be a one product company because if you're just a one product company, the opportunity for other people to come in and overtake you 
is a lot higher. So we were Mm -hmm. like, okay, we've got one product. It kind of works. There's a little bit of bugs, but we've got this real demand from other customers for this product. It would be less time to build, but we know that we kind of want to get on that first mover advantage and then Mm -hmm. you can solidify yourself in the market um, and then it just becomes so much easier to kind of get reoccurring revenue later on. But it, 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 the decision really did come down to this. If It's almost like a shark, right? If a shark stops, it dies. Same kind of thing mm-hmm. with the startup is we're like, we can't not innovate because as soon as we stop innovating, that's when you kind of rest on your laurels a little bit and you risk mm-hmm. having your competitive advantage um, being taken by somebody else just as it, as it would happen and the technology becomes more accessible. Yeah, definitely. Um, interesting you bring up competitive advantage. In this space, would you say it's a competitive field? Not so much yet. Uh, there are definitely people in the peripheries of the industry. So a- another mistake would be saying as, as a business that you have no competitors because a lot of people are like, <laughs> no, we don't have any. And I'm like, no, you do. You just haven't looked hard <laughs> enough. And so there, there are businesses that definitely could do what we're doing I think it's just a matter of identifying that problem space first but also building the relationships I think one thing that I've learned is super super important in business even if you make mistakes is you build the relationships with your clients as people first and customers second so you you can generally genuinely care about them and their needs as people uh, while also addressing your business needs. And that, I think, has formed the basis for a couple of really, really strong partnerships that we've had that have helped us weather some storms when we've had products blow up and bugs go out into into production phases that they shouldn't have. And mm-hmm. people have just been really, like, they've they've been upset, as, as they should be as paying customers. But we made sure we approached it from a very human perspective and we went out and we called them. We didn't just send them an email. We made sure we personally called all of them. Again, that helps having a quite a small niche market because you can do that because we there's only so many people. Uh, but I think that is was super, super important to kind of maintaining our business, really. Yeah, and I think situations like this um, also give you an opportunity to show how you treat customers and like um, how you build relationships with them. Um, what trends, Emily, are you the most excited about in the traffic and mobility space? There's two of them. Uh, the first one is human-led design. I think we're seeing a lot more people take into account people's experiences when they're designing things and that's not just for the majority but also for uh, people who might have uh, people who are living with disabilities Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a long a long lifelong disability it can be someone who's maybe got a cast on because they broke their arm or you're in a wheelchair because you broke your legs and you, you you can't access the infrastructure like if you've in Melbourne a really great example is some of the really old street tram stops like I I'm terrified by them because I'm standing there and the tram literally comes like this close to you there's no way you could fit a wheelchair or or if you're on crutches or even if you you're visually impaired in some way that you could 
it's just very nerve wracking. Uh, so I think we're having more conversations where we're talking to people and referring back to that conversation I had with Rajesh the other day, he made a really good point about investing in talent, um, not tech. So he's like, tech is always going to change and update. And it's how you train your people that is going to uh, show how you react to those changes and how agile that you're going to be. Uh, And the second one that I'm excited about is digitization, which is very broad because there's so many different things in transport. One of the main ones is updates to intelligent transport systems or ITS. So previously, or what we still do is we shove a really high tech car on a road that was meant for human drivers and then kind of expect it to drive itself. And there's been updates now or a big push to update the infrastructure. So it's not just the cars talking to the road, but the road is now going to talk to the cars or the cars are going to talk to each other and then they're going to talk to the infrastructure and be able to kind of just make the way that we navigate cities a lot more streamlined. So I'm really excited about those two things in particular. Hmm. Interesting. Um, And as we move closer to autonomous vehicles, um, so I think we've always thought about it like focusing on the vehicle, but it sounds like how the roads are built and the infrastructure around it is also a really important part. Do you think that um, having the right roads with the right technology behind it is necessary before autonomous vehicle becomes mainstream? I don't know if it's necessary, but I think it would definitely help because... We're putting autonomous vehicles on roads that were built for human drivers. So, and I'm not an expert in, in autonomous vehicles, but you're, you, there are so many things that we could possibly do and opportunities that we could ha- take to improve the infrastructure so that it makes it easier for autonomous vehicles to adapt uh, and easier for them to be able to make decisions as, as as a car does um (laughs) and i think it's part of it that it definitely we shouldn't just be relying on the vehicles and then being like oh well the vehicle made a mistake or the driver of the vehicle made a mistake uh when the infrastructure is not set up with the best interests of autonomous vehicles in mind because they they didn't exist five ten years Mm -hmm. ago so there's no there's the infrastructure of course is not around yet so i think it's worth focusing on how can we improve that infrastructure to help accommodate that new technology. Mm. And the interesting thing about improving infrastructure is that it takes so long and it can be such a disturbance to people's lives. Like even my local train station installing a lift had it torn up for like months. How long do you think it would take to put in like really big changes in terms of our city to fit all this new tech in? At least like 10, 20 years, I would say, just because... Mm there's so many different things you can do and it'll be incremental changes and and I'm it's kind of a right okay because you don't necessarily want these things to be rushed and then them kind of not be exactly what's needed it, I would rather it take a little bit longer and be more thought out and planned uh a, a good probably good opportunity for this I know they're re they're redoing Macquarie Park in the next 25 years they're building a new hub like that would be a really good opportunity to trial some of these opportunities to uh, integrate more uh, urban planning tech and things that would help people and, and commuters and just pedestrians, everyone, basically, the community. Yeah. 
One point that I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on, and I know you sort of talk about a little bit on your podcast, is the topic of women in tech, and particularly as a young woman in tech. Has there been anything that surprised you or interesting that's come up? I mean, there's always something. Uh, (laughs) I would say that I'm kind of lucky, personally, in a sense that I've been, it sounds like a bit of a tangent, but there's a point, like... I have a very long standing in um, Taekwondo. So I've been doing Taekwondo for like a decade now, which is actually very terrifying because oh, I feel cool. very old. But <laughs> and, and teaching as a little bit of that. And that's an area that is very much male dominated. Uh, and it also puts you in situations that you could potentially be very uncomfortable in. Like you've got people with wooden knives who are lunging at you and people who are grabbing you and all of those kind of like very intimidating situations. Um and I think it's built this mindset of like addressing the unknown, but also consistency. Uh, and like, again, 10 years is a very long time. And there are times where it's like not the best. And I'm like, oh man, do I really have to get up and get a training? That I think has really helped with the mindset, which I think is very important. I've noticed it's, it's people think that to be an entrepreneur, you have to be amazing person who's like this a unicorn in yourself and I'd never never imagined myself as an entrepreneur because I was like no that's just not people who are me do not do entrepreneurship or are entrepreneurs it's just I never saw examples of myself um probably another thing that I've picked up very recently uh as as a, a woman in a business and a tech and a startup it's like the trifecta of things that women do not do kind of thing <laughs> is this idea of imposter syndrome. So I've tried to remove it entirely from my vocabulary. The reason behind that being is I read an article that actually um, changed my mind on it. And it said the problem with imposter syndrome, particularly in women, is that it puts the focus on fixing the individual rather than fixing the environments and the workplaces that were never designed with women in mind to begin with. And that's not a company's fault. It's just a very long-standing historical cultural aspect that is going to take a long time to change. But no wonder women do not feel like they belong when they were never supposed to be offered a seat at the table to begin with. So I think removing the rhetoric of imposter syndrome, it's, I think, something, it helps me at least, and it takes the focus of what maybe I'm not good at and says, okay, no, maybe it's not a problem with you. It's a problem with the workplace and the community that you're in. And then you can think about ways to fix the community rather than trying to fix yourself. Wow. That's so interesting. I've never like heard about imposter syndrome being talked about in that sort of way. So yeah, really interesting that you bring it up. And also this might be a bit of a tangent, but, um, I was talking to a friend recently and so here's a guy who asked me what I think about um, like gender diversity quotas in company companies and I know a lot of males um, don't like it because they feel like they're being disadvantaged. Would be really keen to hear your thoughts about that sort of rule in hiring. It's really tricky because I want, I feel like there should be obviously equality in hiring um, but I... <sighs> I think it's also a bit of a systemic issue and the way that we talk to people about particular things, um, like in high school, 
it, it starts back there or even in, in primary school the way that we talk to children about unconscious bias is it's there and we just sometimes don't recognize it and we need to kind of really address it um there was a really great example um there's a book i read called invisible women um by caroline perez super great book i recommend it to almost like every single person i talk to when this topic comes up (laughs) about why not only just like quotas but getting diverse representation is so important uh so I'm pretty sure that most of us as as women have all known or have done something personally to avoid a potentially dangerous situation. So I've, I mean, like I said, I've got 10 years of Taekwondo experience under my belt and I still hate walking home at night. I carry my keys between my fingers or I take my headphones out or I call my my partner because I know that even though if something ever happened, it would be me that the, the person would have to worry about. They're less likely to do something if my six foot tall boyfriend is there with a really deep voice, like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And Caroline Perez actually puts it in a economic and a financial cost. So the whole way that our cities are designed is going to be reliant on having people in power that can provide diverse opinions Men don't have to think about something like maternity parking because a man is never really, you know, ever going to be nine months pregnant. It's we're missing that subset of experiences if we exclude a gender in particular. Uh, And even that's to do with the distance between a building and, and transport infrastructure. It's the whole way that our cities are built is mainly designed on data that's taken from men. Even voice recognition in your phone is trained to be um, predominantly on male voices. A lot of science experiments use male rats. It's there's a it's prolific, and so I think raising awareness of it, in a sense where you can talk about the social and the economic impact, helps that conversation. It's not just women being like this is not fair and men being like oh you're just kind of being a little bit overdramatic and and you know feminine. It, it has actual impacts for the economy and there is, I can't remember the, the exact statistic, but there is a statistic that's saying that companies that have women on the board are more likely to be a certain percent more profitable. So there's actual tangible impacts and I think we need to talk about those as well in that conversation. That is so well said and like, yeah, I think so often we don't think about the way data can skew like everything that is built off that data. So that's a really, really good point. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about human-centered design. So like including all the different diverse experiences when designing for things. Yeah. I also think we need to have both genders on side, right? I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm almost challenging that question of asking women, what more can women do to support other women when we need to be asking all genders and everybody what can they be doing also to support women or just gender and equality access in, in, in general? It's not, it's not just a question that women have to answer because women are doing a lot that they can, but we need everybody involved. It's, it's not going to work if you've just got one, one section of the population that's, that's working on it. Yeah, definitely. Really well said. Um, so over your experience um, working in different things, Emily, um, or just different experiences in general, what has been your biggest sprout or growth moment? Ooh, I think 
there's probably two main ones. Uh, I think when I did the University of Sydney Startup Innovation Prize and I won that because that's like $10,000 or it was last year, it was $10,000 and like I did not, I don't really enjoy pitching, like the sales aspect makes me kind of uncomfortable because I'm like, what if someone asks me a question I don't know? And I think it was just very validating personally to be like, I can now actually measure my contribution to the company in the form of a $10,000 deposit into our bank account. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was having that tangible uh value or the, the value realized in a tangible amount of something in this case it just happened to be money um and then I think another really cool one is having reoccurring revenue so that's exciting because not only do you have someone who signed up to you and thinks that what you're doing has a lot of value but they're also willing to then sign up again and that's I think really it's two of the things that I thought I would never do like if you would ask me five ten years ago and you were like oh do you want to do a business I'm like no first of all I don't know how to pitch and I don't like pitching and people who enter those competitions are very special people and I'm not a very special person (laughs) Uh, and here we are and I'm like that's kind of cool and I guess it just shows you you might as well go for it there's so many opportunities where people either have the same thoughts as you and so they don't apply like I once got a scholarship because only four people applied and I just happened to apply and you you get it by default. It's those kind of situations. It's like, you never know what's going to happen. And again, it sounds really, really cliche, but you miss a hundred percent of the opportunities that you don't take anyway. So you might as well try. And if it happens to work out, then it's kind of cool. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. That's one of my favorite quotes. (laughs) Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show, Emily. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn at The Sproutcast.